All right, so let's go together. We're going to be um, going through just a little bit of 2 Timothy this morning. But as for you, you should continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All the Scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And together we say, thanks be to God. All right, will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we just sang, may it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. amen. I, think, I think somebody's playing a joke because every time I come to pre- here to preach and this is here, they know I'm going to mess with it and it's going to get in my head because if it's there, someone's going to go ahead and toss that that way. All right. So the past three weeks have been uh, really good for my pastoral sensibilities. Um, it has been a not only a wonderful series we've been living in, um, but I have been able to, to be in the scriptures in a whole new way, in a whole, not, not necessarily new, but in a much deeper way. You know, when I transitioned to Dolphin Way into the role of executive pastor, people are like, well, what's different? What's about, different about your job? Most of what I do now on a week to day-to-day basis of the week is, is administrative work, right? I, I work with our committees, our wonderful committees. Um, I do a lot of supervising with our staff. We talk about strategic things, and, and I don't do as much of the things that like seminary trained me for, per se, other than the kind of church leadership, which is fine. As an elder in the United Methodist Church, one of my callings is to order the life of the church. And so I'm happy to get to do those things. But what I love to do is preach and to teach, and to be in relationship with people. And these past three weeks have just been awesome because um, we just finished a two-week Bible study um, where, where on Sunday nights we went through basically the whole Bible in two weeks. It was an overview of kind of like the, the geography and the timeline, and it was so fun for me to prepare that and to teach that. And then just this past Tuesday, I got to teach the first session of another class that just started here. I'm not teaching the rest of them, but they were nice enough to let me come and talk about the book of Daniel and some things we believe, and, and that was a lot of fun. And I tell you, I have just loved um, being in the Scriptures so heavily these past couple weeks, even more so than my typical devotion and like sermon prep time, because like, y'all, I, I love the Bible. Like I'm unashamed to tell you, I love the Bible. I, I, I love, there's very few things in ministry that give me more joy than talking about the Bible with people. I, I, I love the stories that are in it. I love talking about the way that it was put together and like the different history that we can understand about how the Bible came to us. I love talking about how other people have read the Bible over the past centuries and seeing how that impacts the way we read the Bible today. When you read it, I love the poetry and the instruction and the wisdom, but I always have to remind myself that of all the things we Christians do, to an outsider, lots of them look strange, right? We, at the end of this, we're going to come and have some bread and some juice, and we call it body and blood, right? So it, it sounds a little strange, maybe, if you've never been here before. And if you've never been here before, welcome. We're glad you're here. We are a little strange. Because one of the things that we confess is, is that we insist on reading this ancient book over and over and insisting that it still matters for us today. Amen. You know, we are not a culture that has a whole lot of use for old words, 80 years ago, the number one song in the country had a chorus that went like this. Mares eat oats, and does eat oats, and little lambs eat ivy, and kid, I'll eat ivy too, wouldn't you? You listen to that song very much? 10 years ago, the top song was Thrift Shop by Macklemore. 
little different. I can give you a bold prediction that in 50 years, neither of those songs will get much listens, many listens, because we tend to move on from words uh, relatively quickly as a society. But even in all of those years, and in these years, and in all the years to come, even still then, the Christians are reading the same words of Scripture that are, some of them, thousands of years old. And so in this series, where we've been asking for three weeks, uh, why should we trust? Why is Christianity worth trusting? Why are we trusting God? How do we trust that God is good? We've been asking these questions. I think it's good for us to end with asking, how do we trust the Bible? Why do we trust the Bible? Because the beginning point of each of the past three sermons, just like the beginning point of every sermon we preach here at Dolphin Way, is not based on, um, on whichever book you can get off the books a million best-selling Christian list. Those are great to read. But I don't base my sermons on those. I base my sermons on the Bible and the words of Scripture. The only thing that dampened my spirit as we were preparing this, as you know, Michael and I were preparing the sermon, was like, how do I, I just taught five hours over the past three weeks about the Bible. How do I condense that into 22 minutes, right? Um, I'm going to try my best. If we get to five hours, you feel free to walk out. I'm just going to say, like, if I'm still going and y'all have missed lunch and Morrison's is all packed, then, then you can blame me. I'm sorry. But, but I tell you, I, I am excited for us to end this series right here um, because it's also going to set up next week. Today we're talking about what the Bible is and next week we talk about a little more of how do we read it. And so for us to understand why we should trust it, we have to do that very thing. Understand what is the Bible? What, what are these ancient texts that we kind of like dedicate our lives to? I mean, do you know that like as a, as a Christian, there are plenty of people who um, say, I believe in the Bible and I've never read it? It's hard for me, um, but I've also never read the entire Constitution. Like, I remember I had to read it like when I was in fourth grade, but I don't remember what it all says. But I know that I, like, I trust America. I trust America. So sometimes we leave it up to others to help us interpret these things. But I actually think it's really important for you to read the Bible, for you to know what is in there. Because when you say, I, I trust the Bible, what are you saying? I trust this book? It's not even a book. It's not one book, it's 66 books. You're trusting 66 different books that incorporate different genres of literature. If someone were to say the Bible is beautiful, it's poetry, you say, yeah, well, that's part of it. It's not all of it. If someone were to say, you know, the Bible is history, you can say, well, that's true too, it is. There are some historical accounts in there. If someone were to say to you, the Bible is law codes or wise sayings or epic narratives or letters to churches, you can say, well, yes, those are part of it, but none of those are the whole. Some of the books in the Bible were written in a single day, like maybe one of the letters of the New Testament. Other parts of the Bible were written by dozens of different people over hundreds of years. Over a period of hundreds of years, one book of the Bible was written and assembled. The Bible as a whole was written over a 1,500-year period. Some of the oldest texts we have date back to the 10th century BCE, and maybe some of them even further back. It is astounding the Bible is, is many different things, but the reason we come back to it is because the Bible is revealing the story of the same God. The same God that is at work in Genesis and in Revelation is still at work today. From the beginning to the ending, we believe that this is the story of God for the people of God. Why do we say that every week? This is the word of God for the people of God. 
But because it's written over such a long period and because it was written almost 2,000 years ago, sometimes the stories that God is telling in the Bible and the stories that we read, they might be a little difficult to understand, right? Have you ever read through the Bible and realized that there's a story about a talking donkey? Like Shrek had to get that from somewhere, right? There's a man walking on water in the Bible. There's a person that gets eaten by a big fish and then there's a little bit of fish that feed thousands of people. The stories are incredible. Sometimes the Bible is clear as day, and other times it takes a bit of time to work out and to understand a little better. If I were to ask you, who is Moses' father-in-law, would, who would you say? Would you say Reuel, or would you say Jethro? If you said Reuel, you'd be right, because Exodus 2 says, and where is he? And Reuel asked his daughters, why did you leave them? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed, stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. But if you said Jethro, you're also right. Exodus 3 says, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. I don't know if Moses had two father-in-laws or not. Doesn't seem likely. But both accounts are there in the Bible. Let me ask you another question. Who met the women at the tomb when Jesus rose from the dead? If you were to say uh, a young man was there at the tomb, or if you were to say it was uh, an angel, or if you were to say it was two angels, or if you were to say it was two angels who may or may not have become Jesus, you'd be right. Because Mark tells us that it was a young man that meets the women at the tomb. And then Matthew tells us actually it was an angel. And then Luke tells us there were two angels there. And then John tells us it was two angels that may or may not have become Jesus. If no one's ever told you that the end of the gospels do not all agree on the details, I'm sorry, but we've actually believed that and understood that for a long time. Actually, ever since 160 AD, there was a man named Tatian who wanted to iron out the edges of the Easter story. So he tried to put together one cohesive gospel narrative. Instead of four accounts, he said, let's condense them all into one thing. He did just that and he called it the diatessaron. And you know why that's not in your Bible? It's because the early church decided a long time ago that it was trustworthy to include every account and that they were all right, even if they disagreed on the details. It would be like uh, uh, if there was four witnesses to a crime and they all gave the exact same story and the exact same words. You'd have to suspect that they were coached or that somebody had been telling them what to say or how to do it. But if they all gave four different accounts and saw the same thing and they got some of these the main thing's correct, right? Who, who suffered and who did the crime? Well, then you might conclude that they all saw the same thing. They just have four different memories and accounts of what happened. And the details, that's how the early church felt. In the fourth century, when the Christians came together to say, what are our sacred books? The early church said, all four of these gospels are trustworthy and should be included in the Bible. I mean, the, the idea of the Bible holding multiple witnesses within it is not just related to the details of the New Testament. I mean, it's also to just the ideas of how we live our lives and how we understand things. Let me ask you, are, are you supposed to obey the government? Paul says in Romans, everyone must submit himself to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Jesus says in Matthew, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Then why is it we are so quick to glorify Daniel when he defies the governmental authorities or praise Moses for combating his governmental overlords or celebrate John and the rest of the early church and Paul for their refusal to obey the law of bowing down to Caesar? 
These different witnesses and these different testimonies are all in the Bible. They're all right there, waiting to be read, hoping to be put into conversation. It's written over 1,500 years, different writing styles, different literature. My best analogy for what the Bible is it's, when people say it's just one book, I'd be like, well, that would be like if you had one book that you just picked up from the story and decided to read it from front to back. But in that book, you took some of the letters that George Washington wrote to his generals. If you took uh, uh, some of the sonnets from William Shakespeare. If you took J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter narrative stories. If you took American history class textbook. If you took the wisdom from all the, the, the wisest ancestors or from the calendar um, about what well, it's got like great sayings on it for the day. You put all those together and said, this is one book. It wouldn't make a whole lot of sense reading it front to back nonstop as if they were all the same thing. You'd want to stop and say, well, what is this and and who wrote it and why? How is it different from the, the other parts? The Bible is a lot of things. And the Bible is nothing if it's not honest. It doesn't sugarcoat things. It doesn't try to hide the ugly parts to make things seem better. I mean, have you ever read Psalm 137? It's about as far from a pretty picture as it gets. The psalmist writes this, happy is the one who seizes the infants of Babylon and dashes their heads upon the rocks. So when you say like, I follow the Bible, do you mean I follow 137? What does it mean for you to trust the Bible? I don't believe that that particular verse in Psalm 137 is a representation of the heart of God. I believe that it is an honest and faithful Israelite praying in their anger and in their sorrow whenever they were taken out into exile and wanting justice or restoration or revenge. And the reason I don't believe that that is the heart of God is because Jesus tells me that the will of God is that we love our enemies and that we welcome little children. And so I believe that all these different voices are in the Bible And it's a good thing. (laughs) Even when they seem to contradict one another, they're all still telling the story of God. And a story that we can read together and try to understand as a church. It's a story about the same God that was there in the beginning and who will be there in the end. So like I said, today is mostly a story just about that, what is the Bible? Um, But next week we'll talk about how to read all those things that are a little bit contradictory. But to conclude our sermon this morning and to, to wrap up, I want to spend the last few minutes answering that question of why should you trust it? Why should you trust the Bible? Well, it's because the Bible is sufficient and the Bible is inspired. And what do we mean when we say that the Bible is sufficient? It means that anybody at any point can come and read or hear the Bible and experience salvation. That when you read the Bible, Because it is the word of God, you can fully encounter God in the text. You've probably heard the phrase solo scriptura. If you ever took like a a Christian history class or maybe just out and about. It's it's a key phrase that was popularized by Martin Luther during the Protestant Reformation. It's a Latin phrase that translates to scripture alone. Solo scriptura. And solo scriptura means that the scriptures alone contain all the things necessary for salvation. It was the response by Luther and the reformers to the the Roman Catholic Church at the time who was saying you had to do all these other things before you could be saved. And they said, no, 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 the Bible tells us. We can see here in, in the scriptures that all we need 
If we just have faith, we just believe. If we read the scriptures, we can encounter God. The scriptures alone are sufficient. And though we are not part of the Reformed tradition like the Lutherans, we do also hold to that same belief. The scriptures are sufficient. We believe a person can encounter God in the Bible and experience salvation. However, that doesn't mean that the scriptures are sufficient as a science textbook or as a history of the world, but specifically, the Bible is sufficient for salvation. It contains everything we need to know in order to know that we are called by God, that we are justified by God, we are sanctified by God. It's all right there. And we can experience it when we read the words, when we hear them talked about and read aloud. And the other reason we trust the Bible is because we know that it is inspired. It is inspired by the breath of God. The the words you hear from that, from Scripture, we read just a second ago, 2 Timothy, is that all Scripture is inspired, but some of the other verses and translations will will say, all Scripture is God-breathed. Have you ever read that version of it before? It's because when, if you were to read that passage in the original Greek that Paul was writing in, the phrase there would be theonoustos, which literally translates to God-breathed. And if you look for that word elsewhere in the Bible, uh, you won't find it because Paul made it up. Paul decided there wasn't a word good enough to describe what he meant by what the scriptures can do and what they are. You see, it turns out that the Apostle Paul was so overwhelmed by trying to describe Scripture and to try to show why you should trust this, he had to come up with something altogether new. But it wasn't invented out of thin air. He came up with that word the same way he came up with other words in 1 Corinthians. He went back to the Hebrew text in the Old Testament, and he found kind of a a noun and a verb, and and he smashed them together. Maybe you can guess where he went back to find this particular word. If you remember in Genesis 2, verse 7, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust in the ground and breathed into his nostrils and the breath of life, and the man became a living being. When we say that scripture is inspired, we mean it has life and it gives life and it draws us to the living God. God breathed life into these words, and so they have life for us to experience. And when we read them, it is like God breathing the word into us and giving us that life. You know, as we think about a little bit about what the Bible is and, and why we should trust it, I also think it's probably to, to say one thing about what it does. A little specific about what it does, actually. Uh, Bruce, I'm sorry, I forgot to ask your permission before I tell this story. It's not about you. It's just one you told the other day. It, it, Reverend Bruce Fitzgerald, who is always with us almost every single Sunday, um, he told a great story at Grits and Grace the other day about what the Bible can do. He told a story about that there is this, this pastor um, that he knew once who had a, an incredible testimony. You see, he was, this man was as far as a Christian as you could get. Um, he was in prison for borrowing cars and not returning them. In his cell, um, he had the Bible, but he would use the pages uh, to, to rip out, to roll up, and use them for, for smoking. And he, would, uh, he began at the back of the book, and he was working his way backwards through the New Testament, one page at a time, not caring about what it was, just what it could do for him. And then um, he noticed that one of the pages was harder to pull out, and so he decided to look down and see what was on it. 
And it, it happened to be at the very end of John's gospel. And so he, he decided he'd start and he'd read John's gospel. And when he had read his way through John's gospel, he was so filled with such a strange new sensation that he turned back to Matthew, to the beginning of those New Testament words of Jesus. And he read all four gospels. And after that, he was hungry for more. And he found something in those pages that was unlike anything else he'd ever experienced in his entire life. Something that, that welled up inside of him. Some sort of new life for a man that's trapped in the darkness. And the salvation that he found from reading the Bible changed his life so thoroughly that when he was released from prison, he became a pastor and led others to read the word and discover the life that God wants us all to live and to discover that God is there in the Bible transforming us when we read these holy words. That's why we trust it. That's what it can do. This is the living word of God. This word has life. And this word gives life. It can transform us if we take the time to sit with it, to read it, to trust it for a reason, and not just because somebody told us we're supposed to. To not just read it blindly and just assume that it all makes sense if you just read it from, from front to back. It, it has life, but you have to spend the time with it. You have to read it with other people. It's a book that's written not just to one person, but to the community, to the people of God. It, in the Bible, you can find the one true God. In the Bible, you, you see a story not about perfect people. I think sometimes we put that pressure on the Bible, like everybody in the Bible gets it right, so we just need to be like the people in the Bible. The Bible is not a story about perfect people. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> the Bible is a story about a people's relationship with God, and it can get messy. There are stories in the Bible that are complicated and that are tough. There are scripture verses that sometimes don't make sense, which reminds me a lot of my own story with God. My own faith journey can sometimes be messy and it can be a place from which I, I turn away or I retreat or I decide it's too much work so I don't want to deal with it. Why would I come back to the Bible? It just takes so much work. Why would I work on my faith? I can just do other things and it's just a lot easier. But it's also a beautiful story. The Bible's a messy story, but it's a beautiful story, just like yours. Your story is a beautiful one, friends. Every one of our stories, because our story is about our relationship with God and how that impacts our relationship with others. And that has a chance to be the most beautiful thing in creation. How we can love God and love one another. So in the Bible, you find this story where people are able to do miraculous things because God continues to trust us, all of us, to tell others the story that God's been telling from the very beginning. And I hope you can trust that. I hope you can trust that God trusts you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.